Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, lots of popular activism, mostly among the young. You don't find it in the political class. They barely allow a word of dissent, but it's in popular activism, kind of thing that our late friend Howard Zinn talked about so eloquently. That's where you find the dissent, the activism, the hope for some kind of escape from these catastrophes that we're hurtling towards. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on Chronicles of Dissent. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King memorably said, We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Our present precarious circumstances make Dr. King's words abundantly clear. We face war, climate chaos, a pandemic, inequality, hunger, and poverty. The perils confronting humankind are unprecedented. And always looming in the background are doomsday weapons that can destroy our precious planet. The threats are accumulating, Noam Chomsky says. We are approaching the most dangerous point in human history. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist who's been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. The New Statesman calls him the conscience of the American people. Author of scores of books, his latest are Consequences of Capitalism, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, and Chronicles of Dissent. I talked with Noam Chomsky on May 12th. Well, welcome to the program, Noam. Glad to be with you as always. The U.S. has just passed one million dead from the coronavirus pandemic. According to the World Health Organization, the global death toll, which has been undercounted is actually 15 million. And there's a new Omicron subvariant offshoot. There's another thing you should add. There is an international conference seeking to accelerate plans to deal with it. As usual, it's being blocked by the Republican Party, which is refusing to provide funds to deal with the COVID epidemic. Anything that can harm the population, you can be sure that the Republican Party will be front and center. And remember that they're likely to take power. Not a pretty prospect. What about the planet heating up? Is there a danger of even more virulent corona strains arising? Well, the World Meteorological Organization came out a day or two ago with a uh, an analysis saying they moved forward a couple of years, the date when there's a 50-50 chance that uh, the planet will heat to 1.5 degrees centigrade over pre-industrial levels. That's not permanent. It's just that it will hit that level temporarily 
that's the uh, low point of what the world had hoped to achieve. So we're getting within five years of it. And that can set in irreversible processes, uh, which means uh, just a slow death. Actually, one of the worst effects of the Ukraine war is it is greatly accelerating this. This report from the World Meteorological Organization came out on the same day that the Biden administration announced the wide-ranging plans for increase in fossil fuel production. Actually, the uh, fracking is expanding so rapidly that it's likely to destroy all of us. There's other things that are happening. One effect of the prolongation of the war in uh, uh, the Ukraine war is uh, massive starvation over Africa, Asia, Middle East, Ukraine, and Russia were the major grain exporters. It's, of course, sharply curtailed. Literally millions of people are dying because of the prolongation of the war, and we're moving towards a possibly terminal global heating crisis. I'd like to hear your views on the uh, French election and Macron getting a second term. Uh, His rival, Marine Le Pen, the leader of a far-right party, got 41% of the vote, a rather stunning figure by any measure. You recently had some positive things to say about Macron. The positive things I had to say about Macron did not have to do with his uh, domestic policies. In fact, he's shifted well to the right to uh, try to undercut the Le Pen vote. Uh, It had to do with his international efforts. He's the one statesman in the West who made at least some tentative efforts, which proved abortive, to uh, contact Putin to see if there was a way to avert the aggression then later to limit it. Those are the correct moves. They were not supported by the U.S. and NATO. Uh, Putin didn't respond to them. But it was the right move to make. Uh, something that we should keep clearly in mind. There will either be a diplomatic settlement to this invasion, to the aggression in Ukraine, or Uh, We will be taking a horrendous gamble, hoping that uh, Putin will simply disappear, slink away quietly in defeat, or that he will use the weapons that he obviously has, no one doubts it, to devastate Ukraine and set the stage for a wider, uh, possibly terminal war. And at the same time, The longer we delay in this effort, the more people starve in Asia and Africa, the closer we come to uh, heating the planet to the point where it's irreversible. Uh, You can read, uh, for example, in almost always today's New York Times column saying we have to ensure 
that Russia emerges weaker. The official policy of the United States and NATO reaffirmed a couple days ago at the U.S. Air Base, Rammstein Air Base in Germany, is that we must pursue the war to weaken Russia. Well, the more we pursue the war to weaken Russia, the more Ukrainians die, the more people starve to death all over the, uh, Asia and Africa, the closer we come to heating the world to the point of no return. Those are the choices. Now, your family background is connected to Ukraine. Talk about that. Well, my father lived in a small village in uh, western Ukraine. He and his immediate family were able to escape the violent anti-Semitism, the uh, threat of being conscripted into the Tsar's army, which was virtual death sentence for a Jewish boy. Uh, they left, were able to leave in 1913. That's the immediate family. Uh, everyone else was exterminated. It's kind of unpleasant to think about. And the village itself is in the Khmelnytsky Oblast region in Ukraine. Who's Khmelnytsky? He's Ukrainian patriot. He's also in Jewish history. I learned about it when I was a child. The perpetrator of the first huge modern pogrom, maybe 100,000 or more Jews murdered. That's Jewish history. Ukrainian history is a great hero. Well, it's part of the history of that part of the world. The countries themselves are you know, they have very complex histories. Many didn't even exist until the last couple centuries or even more recent. But that region, what is now Poland, uh, Ukraine, were regions of periodic violent anti-Semitism. My father didn't talk much about his childhood, but uh, he would occasionally talk about what it was like when the Cossacks rampage through the village. And the undercurrent of anti-Semitism was, of course, quite serious. And uh, the current map reflects the unwillingness or inability to recognize that history. And tell me about your mother's family. Uh, was it from the, Ukraine? They came from what is now Belarus. Uh, they came when my mother was a baby. She didn't have any memory of what was then Russia. Uh, the immediate family again escaped. Uh, nothing is known about whatever extended family remained. But not many Jews escaped uh, the Nazi invasion. Let's jump a little bit to uh, something called the Holo Domor, uh, the 1932-33 famine during the Soviet period. Millions died. Was that, as, as it is sometimes said, engineered by Stalin to punish the Ukrainian kulaks, small landowners? It was an episode of forced collectivization, which was very brutal. And it's quite possible that uh, 
uh, Stalin was in fact uh, aiming to punish the kulaks, whatever the details, it was a hideous slaughter, millions of people. And another crucial bit of history is the 1941 German invasion of Ukraine, uh, which was initially welcomed by some Ukrainians. The story is pretty murky, but Ukrainians were split. Some uh, did support the Nazis and supported the invasion. Others resisted. It's claimed by historians, Timothy Snyder, one of the main historians of the period, that the majority opposed Hitler. I don't know how solid the evidence is for that. I mean, just as a personal fact, it's, again, not relevant to these issues. But according to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Institute in Israel, which does documentation of these things, according to them, my last known relative was killed in 1942 by a Ukrainian Nazi. Now, we've talked about the George H.W. Bush era assurance to uh, Gorbachev that NATO would not move one inch to the east. Uh, this pledge has been verified. My question to you is, why didn't Gorbachev get that in writing? He accepted a gentleman's agreement which is not that uncommon in diplomacy, shake of the hand. Uh, furthermore, having it on paper would have made no difference whatsoever. Treaties that are on paper are torn up all the time. What matters is good faith. And in fact, H.W. Uh, Bush, the first Bush, did honor the agreement explicitly. In fact, uh, even moved towards instituting a partnership and peace, which would uh, uh, accommodate the countries of Eurasia, NATO wouldn't be disbanded, but would be marginalized. Uh, countries could join, like Tajikistan, for example, joined without being part of NATO. And Gorbachev approved of that. Uh, it would have been a step towards creating what uh, Gorbachev called a European common home with no military alliances. This would be a step towards this. Well, Clinton, in his first couple of years, uh, also adhered to it, according to the most knowledgeable sources, like uh, Jack Matlock, Reagan-Bush ambassador to Russia, who's a Russia specialist, knows the country very well, knows Washington very well. You can read his memoirs. But he describes others, Chess Freeman, Ambassador Freeman, who was also involved in these matters at the time. What they say is that by about 1994, Clinton started to, as they put it, talk from both sides of his mouth. To the Russians, he was saying, yes, we're going to adhere to the agreement to the uh, Polish community in the United States other ethnic minorities, he was saying, don't worry, we'll incorporate you within NATO. By, I think, about 1996-97, uh, Clinton said this pretty explicitly to Yeltsin, his friend Yeltsin, who 
he had helped uh, materially to win the 1996 election. He told Yeltsin, don't push too hard on this NATO business. Uh, we're going to expand, but I need it because of the ethnic vote in the United States. Clinton's words were approximately like that. 1997, uh, Clinton invited the uh, so-called Visegrad countries, uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, to join NATO. The Russians didn't like it, but didn't make much of a fuss. Baltic nations joined again the same thing. In 2008, the second Bush was quite different from the first. 2008, Bush II invited Ukraine into NATO. Uh, every U.S. diplomat understood very well that Georgia and Ukraine are red lines for Russia. They'll tolerate the expansion elsewhere, but these are their geostrategic heartland, and they're not going to tolerate expansion there. Well, continue with the story. The Maidan uprising took place in 2014, expelled the pro-Russian president. The country moved towards the West. U.S. and NATO from 2014 began to pour uh, arms into Ukraine, advanced weapons, military training, joint military exercises, moves to integrate uh, Ukraine into the NATO military command. There's no secret about this. It was quite quite open recently. The Secretary of General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, bragged about it, described it, and said, this is what we were doing since 2014. Well, of course, this is very consciously highly provocative. Uh, they knew that they were encroaching into what every Russian leader, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, everyone else, regarded as a uh, an intolerable move. Well, France and, v and Germany vetoed it in 2008, but under U.S. pressure, it was kept on the agenda. And uh, as I say, uh, NATO, meaning the United States, moved uh, to accelerate the de facto integration of uh, Ukraine into the NATO military command. Uh, this was in 2019. Zelensky was elected in a uh, overwhelming majority, I think about 70% of the vote, and he was elected on a peace platform, a plan to implement a peace with eastern Ukraine, Russia, uh, to settle the problem. He began to move forward on it, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, went to the tried to go to the Donbass region, the eastern region, to try to implement what's called the Minsk II Agreement, which uh, would have meant a kind of federalization of Ukraine with a degree of autonomy for the eastern region, which is what they wanted, the Russia-oriented region, something like Switzerland or Belgium, other federal arrangements. He was blocked by right-wing militias, which threatened to murder him if he persisted with this effort. 
Well, he's a courageous man. He could have gone forward if he had had any backing from the United States. U.S. refused. No backing. Uh, nothing. Uh, which meant he was left to hang out to dry and had to back off. That would have been a possibility, can't be sure, to avert the invasion. But the U.S. was intent on this policy of step-by-step integrating Ukraine into the NATO military command. Well, that accelerated further when President Biden was elected. September 2021, you can read it on the White House website, wasn't reported, but of course the Russians knew it. Biden announced a program a joint, as a joint statement to uh, accelerate the process of military training, uh, military exercises, more weapons as part of what they called an enhanced program of preparation for NATO membership. So it accelerated further in November. This is all before the invasion. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken signed what was called a charter, which essentially formalized and extended this arrangement. A spokesman for the State Department conceded that before the invasion, the U.S. refused to discuss any Russian security concerns. Well, all of this is part of the background. February 24th, Putin invaded. Criminal invasion, these serious provocations provide no justification for it. If Putin had been a statesman, what he would have done is something quite different. He would have, going back to Macron, he would have uh, grasped the tentative Macron proposals and moved to try to reach an accommodation with Europe to take steps towards a European common home. U.S., of course, is opposed to that, has always been opposed to it. This goes way back in Cold War history to de Gaulle's initiatives to establish an independent Europe, uh, in de Gaulle's phrase, from the Atlantic to the Urals, uh, integrating Russia with uh, the West, which is very natural accommodation for trade reasons, obviously, security reasons, and so on. Had there been any statesmen within Putin's narrow circle, well, they would have grasped Macron's uh, initiatives and experimented to see whether, in fact, they could integrate with Europe and avert the crisis. Instead, what he chose was a policy which, from the Russian point of view, is total imbecility, apart from the criminality of the invasion. He chose a policy which drove Europe deep into the pocket of the United States. In fact, is even inducing Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Worst possible outcome from the Russian point of view, quite apart from the criminality of the invasion uh, and the very serious losses that Russia is suffering because of that. So criminality and stupidity on the Kremlin side, 
severe provocation on the US side. And that's the background that has led to this. Now we know we have had all along and we still have the same options. Can we try to bring the horror to an end or shall we try to perpetuate it? Those are the choices. There's only one way to bring it to an end. That's diplomacy. Now, diplomacy, by definition, means both sides accept it. They don't like it, but they accept it as the least bad, which means that each side gets some kind of gain and some kind of loss. That's diplomacy. It would mean that it offers Putin some kind of escape hatch. That's one possibility. The other possibility is just to drag it out. Drag it out, uh, see how much everybody will suffer, how much Ukrainians will die, how much Russia will suffer, how many millions of people starve to death in Asia and Africa, how much we proceed towards heating the environment to the point where there will be no possibility for livable uh, human existence. But those are the options. Well, with near 100% unanimity, uh, the United States and most of Europe want to pick the no diplomacy option. You can read, it's explicit. We have to keep going to hurt Russia. Uh, I said you can read columns in the New York Times this morning, London Financial Times, all over Europe, um, many discussions and interviews in Europe, common refrain, got to make sure that Russia suffers. Doesn't matter what happens to Ukraine or anyone else. And of course, this gamble assumes that if Putin is pushed to the limit, with no escape, forced to admit defeat, it assumes he'll accept that and not use the weapons that he has to devastate Ukraine. There are a lot of things that Russia hasn't done. In fact, Western analysts are rather surprised by it. Namely, they have not attacked the supply lines from Poland that are pouring weapons into Ukraine. Western analysts are pretty surprised about that. Well, they certainly can do it. That'll very soon bring them into confrontation with NATO, meaning the US. Where it goes from there, you can guess. Anyone who's ever looked at war games knows where it'll go. It'll go up the escalatory ladder up to terminal nuclear war. So those are the games we're playing with the lives of Ukrainians, Asians and Africans, future of civilization in order to weaken Russia to make sure that they suffer enough. Well, you wanna play that game, be honest about it. There's no moral basis for it. In fact, it's morally horrendous. And the people who are standing up on a high horse about how we're upholding principle are moral imbeciles when you think about what's involved. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on Chronicles of Dissent, 
This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program and his book, Chronicles of Descent, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online to our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. In the media and among the political class in the United States and probably in Europe, there's much uh, moral outrage about uh, Russian barbarity and uh, war crimes and atrocities. No doubt they are occurring as they do in every war. Don't you find that uh, moral outrage a bit selective? The moral outrage is quite in place. There should be moral outrage. I mean, you go to the global south, they just can't believe what they're seeing. Uh, They condemn the war, of course. It's deplorable crime of aggression. Then they look at the West and said, what are you guys talking about? This is what you do to us all the time. I mean, it's kind of astonishing to see the difference in commentary. So you read the New York Times there big thinker, Thomas Friedman, had a column a couple weeks ago in which he just threw up his hands in despair. He said, what can we do? How can we live in a world that has a war criminal? We've never experienced this before since Hitler. Uh, There's a war criminal in Russia. We're at a loss as to how to act. We've never... Imagine the idea that it could be a war criminal anywhere. I mean, when people in the global south hear this, they don't know whether to crack up in laughter or, or in ridicule. you got war criminals walking all over Washington. Don't have to go through it. Uh, but uh, actually, it's, we know how to deal with our war criminals. In fact, it happened on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Afghanistan, but it was pretty enlightening. There was, in fact, an interview with the perpetrator, could go into it, but this was an entirely unprovoked invasion, strongly opposed by world opinion. But there was a, uh, a an interview with the decider, George W. Bush, who then went on to invade Iraq major war criminal. The interview was in the Washington Post in the style section. It was an interview with, as they described it, this lovable, goofy grandpa who was playing with his grandchildren, making jokes, uh, showing off the portraits he'd painted of famous people he'd met. Just a beautiful, friendly, environment. That was the one interview with one of our major war criminals. So we know how to deal with war criminals. Thomas Friedman is wrong. We deal with them very well, or take uh, probably the major war criminal in the modern period, Henry Kissinger. We deal with him uh, not only politely, but uh, with great admiration. This is the man, after all, who Uh, gave the order, transmitted the order to the Air Force, saying massive bombing of Cambodia, anything that moves against anything that flies. 
I don't know of a comparable example in the archival record of a call to mass genocide. And it was implemented, very intensive bombing of Cambodia. We don't know much about it because we don't investigate our crimes, but historians of Cambodia have described it. Owen Taylor, Ben Kiernan, very serious, uh, overthrow the government of Chile, instituting a vicious dictatorship, uh, on and on. So we do know how to deal with our war criminals. But Thomas Friedman couldn't imagine that there's anything like this. There was no comment about it, which means it was regarded as quite reasonable. You can hardly use the word selectivity. It's just beyond astonishing. So yes, the moral outrage is perfectly in place. It's good that Americans are finally beginning to show some outrage about major war crimes committed by someone else. It seems your dog is outraged right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like what she's hearing. I've got a little puzzle for you, Noam. Uh, maybe you can help us out with this. It's in two parts. Russia's military is inept and incompetent. Its soldiers have very low morale and are poorly led. Its economy it ranks with Italy and Spain. Well, that's one piece. The other piece is Russia is a military colossus that threatens to overwhelm us. So we need more weapons Let's and let's expand NATO. So how do you reconcile those two contradictory thoughts? Those are the two thoughts that are standard in the entire West. I just had an long interview in Sweden about it, about their plans to join NATO, pointed out Swedish leaders have two contradictory ideas. The two you mentioned, one gloating over the fact that Russia has proven itself to be a paper tiger that can't conquer cities a couple of miles from the border, defended by a mostly uh, citizen's army. So they're completely militarily incompetent. The other thought is they're poised to conquer the West and destroy us. Well, there's a name for that. George Orwell had a name for it. He called it doublethink. Uh, the capacity to have two contradictory ideas in mind and to believe both of them. Uh, Orwell mistakenly thought that that was something you could only have in the ultra-totalitarian state that he was satirizing. Well, he was wrong. You can have it in free democratic societies. We're seeing a dramatic example of it right now. Incidentally, this is not the first time. It's no time to go through the history, but this doublethink is pretty characteristic of Cold War thinking. Uh, you go way back to NSC 68, the major Cold War document, 1950. And if you look at the document carefully, it showed that uh, Europe alone, quite apart from the United States, was militarily on a par with Russia. But of course, the United States overwhelmed everything, 
But nevertheless, we have to have a huge rearmament program to counter the uh, Kremlin design for world conquest. That's inside one document. Uh, that was conscious. Uh, Dean Acheson, one of the authors, later said, it's necessary to be clearer than truth, his phrase, in order to bludgeon the mass mind of government. We want to drive through this huge military budget, so we have to be clearer than truth. Concoct a slave state that's about to conquer the world. And much of uh, uh, what's called internal political maneuvering is rather like this. This runs right through the Cold War. Uh, give many other examples. But we're seeing it now quite dramatically, and the way you put it is exactly correct. These two ideas consume the West. It's also interesting that uh, George Kennan foresaw the danger of NATO moving its borders east in a very prescient op-ed he wrote that appeared in the New York Times in in 1997. Kennan was also opposed to NSC 68. In fact, Kennan had been the director of the State Department policy planning staff. Uh, He was kicked out, replaced by Paul Nitze, because Kennan was regarded as too soft for this hard world, even in his famous long telegram and other papers. He was basically warning against military confrontation. He was a hawk. He was radically anti-communist, pretty brutal himself with regard to U.S. possessions. But he was sane. He realized that military confrontation with Russia makes no sense. Russia, he thought, will collapse ultimately from internal contradictions, which turned out to be correct. But he was considered a dove all the way through. In 1952, he was in favor of unification of Germany uh, outside NATO military alliance. Uh, that, that actually was Stalin's proposal as well, though rather surprisingly, Kennan never seems to have mentioned it. Don't know why. Doesn't seem to be in his diaries. But uh, I'm sure he was aware of it. He was ambassador to Russia and a Russia specialist. But uh, there was that option in 1952, a Stalin initiative, Kennan's proposal, some Europeans supported it, would have ended the Cold War, would have meant a neutralized Germany, non-militarized, not part of any military bloc, very likely ended the Cold War was totally ignored in the United States, almost totally. There was one foreign policy specialist, respected one, James Warburg, wrote a book about it, worth reading. It's a book called Germany, Key to Peace, in which he urged that this idea be taken seriously. He was disregarded, ignored, if it's ever mentioned, ridiculed. I mentioned it a couple of times, of course, was ridiculed, I was a lunatic, how can you believe Stalin? Well, the archives came out, turns out, was apparently serious. You now read 
the leading Cold War historians, people like Melvin Leffler, they recognized that there was apparently a real opportunity for peaceful settlement at the time, which was dismissed. I won't say overlooked, because of course they knew all about it. Dismissed in favor of militarization, in favor of uh, a huge expansion of the military budget. Now, this story continues. It's, let's go to the Kennedy administration. When Kennedy came into office, Nikita Khrushchev, who head of the Central Committee leading Russia at the time, made a very important offer. He offered to uh, carry out mutual reduction, large-scale mutual reduction of offensive military weapons. That would have meant a sharp relaxation of tensions. Uh, the United States, of course, was far ahead, far ahead militarily. But Khrushchev wanted to move towards economic development in Russia and understood this is impossible in the context of a military confrontation with a far richer adversary. So this offer was made, actually was first made to Eisenhower, didn't pay any attention, was offered to Kennedy. Kennedy administration considered it and responded by the largest peacetime buildup of military force in history, even though they knew that the United States was far ahead, concocted, you may recall, a missile gap. Russia's about to overwhelm us with its advantages in missiles. Well, the missile gap was exposed. Turned out there was a missile gap in the U.S. favor. The Russian had maybe four missiles which were exposed on an air base somewhere. McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor for Kennedy was asked after this, uh, what about the missile gap? He said something like this. He said, we're going to keep to it because it's a good shorthand for our military policy. Now, that's how much security matters. You can go on and on like with this. The security of the population is simply not a concern for uh, policymakers. Security for the, the privileged, the rich, the corporate sector, uh, arms manufacturers, sure. Security for them is a policy factor, not the population. So this double thing uh, is constant, sometimes conscious and planned, sometimes not. Today, it's just what Orwell described hyper-totalitarianism in a free societies. It's an interesting phenomenon, like Friedman's uh, amazement that there are war criminals in the world. In an article in Truthout, you quote uh, Eisenhower's Cross of Iron speech, which he gave in 1953. What did you find of interest there? You should read it, and then you'll see why it's interesting. It's the best and most important speech that he, he ever made. This is 1953 when he was just taking office. And basically what he pointed out is that militarization, a military budget, is a tremendous attack on our own society. He, or whoever wrote the speech, put it pretty eloquently. 
one jet plane means this many fewer schools and hospitals. Every time we're building up our military budget, we're attacking ourselves. And, and they spelled it out in some detail, calling for a decline in the military budget. Uh, he had a pretty awful record himself, but in this respect, he was right on target. And those words should be emblazoned in everyone's memory. That's a constant today, in fact. Uh, Biden put through a huge military budget. Congress expanded it even beyond. Major attack on U.S. society for Eisenhower's reasons. Uh, it's uh, done because of the claim that uh, we have to defend ourselves from this paper tiger, uh, which is so militarily incompetent, can't move a couple of miles beyond its border without collapse. So we have to severely harm ourselves and endanger the world by a huge military budget, wasting enormous resources that are necessary if we're going to overdeal with the severe existential crises that we face. And meanwhile, we pour taxpayer funds into the pockets of the fossil fuel producers so that they can continue to destroy the world as quickly as possible. We don't want to delay it. We want to ensure that they do it as quickly as possible. That's what we're witnessing with the vast expansion of fossil fuel production, of uh, military expenditures. Um, there are people who are happy about this. Go to the executive offices of uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, ExxonMobil, they're ecstatic. That's a bonanza for them. They're even giving credit for it. Like the fossil fuel manufacturers are free from these uh, annoying environmentalists who accuse them of harming the world. Now they're being lauded for saving civilization by destroying the possibility for life on Earth. Forget the global south. If you imagine some extraterrestrial observer, if one existed, they'd think we're all totally insane. And they'd be right. I know you don't watch much uh, commercial TV, but um, I do from time to time. And just um, on May 11th, ABC World News Tonight with David Muir. Apparently, this has millions of uh, viewers. And so this was the uh, same day that the aforementioned World Meteorological Organization issued its very serious report. It was not mentioned in the newscast. Instead, the lead story for a full five minutes was the capture of an escaped convict who was aided and abetted by a police officer. Other riveting stories that followed included celebrity chef Mario Batali found not guilty of sexual misconduct and a young woman fighting back in an, in an attempted abduction in Boston and on and on. What do you make of a culture that is just turning away from reality? It's a good question. I don't know if it's conscious or just... Uh... That's how we sell newspapers. That's how we get advertisers. 
I mean, the point of a newspaper actually is to make profit. To make profit, you have to have advertisers. And the advertisers aren't going to be there unless people are watching. People would apparently much prefer reading about these personal interest stories than reading about the fact that we're hurtling towards species suicide. Well, I think that's a cultural, deep cultural problem beyond the media. Educational system, churches, all organizations. We live in a cultural environment in which the most severe crises and problems are marginalized. You can see why this is to the benefit of major corporations. It's obviously to the benefit of uh, what used to be a political party, the Republican Party. I don't like to call them a party anymore. But uh, ever since Nixon, they have understood that if they want to gain power, they have to turn people's attention away from real issues. You cannot get votes by saying, look, I'm working slavishly for the corporate sector and the ultra-rich, and I want to stab you in the back. Please vote for me. Doesn't work. Nixon understood that. Republican strategists have understood it ever since. That's why they have taken as their major policies since Nixon what are called cultural issues, meaning not economic, not class issues. Can't talk about those because on those, we're stabbing you in the back. So for Nixon, it was what was called the Southern strategy, not very concealed racism. We're the racist party. So Southern Democrats vote for us. A couple of years later, uh, Paul Weyrich, uh, major Republican strategist, uh, Christian nationalist himself, uh, realized that uh, if Republicans pretended to be opposed to abortion, uh, they could get the evangelical vote and the Northern Catholic vote. So they all switched on a dime. Reagan, H.W. Bush, other leaders suddenly shifted from their pro-choice policies to anti-abortion policies, picked up a lot of votes. Uh, same with guns. Uh, now it's CRT, you know, anything to keep the people's attention away from what they're actually doing. So you don't want the population to look at the one legislative achievement during the Trump years. One, a huge tax cut for the very rich and the corporate sector, stabbing everyone else in the back. You don't want people to look at that, obviously. So let's look at uh, whether uh, innocent white children are being made to feel guilty about slavery. Let's look at that. Or let's look at uh, abortion rights, anything but what we're doing to you. This, so in, in short, without going on, the Democrats are by no means innocent of this, I should say. Just the Republicans are egregious. There's plenty of institutional reasons 
for trying to create a culture in which people are not paying attention. In fact, that's explicit in liberal democratic theory. Walter Lippmann, Harold Glasswell, Edward Bernays, the great figures of liberal democratic theory, held the position explicitly that, as Lippmann put it, the public have to be put in their place, spectators, not participants. They have to be fed uh, necessary illusions, emotionally potent oversimplifications. That's Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian, moral figure, because they just are too stupid and ignorant to know what they're doing. They'll just get in our way, so divert them somehow. That's liberal democratic theory. When you go to the right, it just gets a lot harsher. We have to use harsher pressures to marginalize them. But going back to your questions, there's a lot of powerful institutional reasons to create a population that will be absorbed in diverting personal interest stories, not paying attention to what's happening in the world. That's our business, the powerful, the rich, not a new insight. Adam Smith talked about it, but the major factor in the world. We have a new book out called Chronicles of Dissent, collected interviews from 1984 to 1996. What is the status of dissent today uh, in the United States? What do you see that's positive out there in dissent? It's on the streets where it usually is. Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, lots of popular activism, mostly among the young. You don't find it in the political class. Political class is very well insulated. They barely allow a word of dissent. But uh, it's in popular activism, kind of thing that our late friend Howard Zinn talked about so eloquently. That's where you find the dissent, the activism, the hope for some kind of escape from these catastrophes that we're hurtling towards. Thanks very much for your time, Noam. Thank you. That was Noam Chomsky on Chronicles of Dissent. I talked with him on May 12th. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. And since its inception, we have made a special effort to record and archive Professor Chomsky's work. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for copies of today's program, Noam Chomsky on Chronicles of Dissent, And for his book, Chronicles of Dissent, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. 
If you'd like a free copy of printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet. Special thanks to Balaji Narasimhan. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. C J S W 90.9 FM Broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta I can see it right through you. I can see it right through. 